Grab your Bible, Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Go ahead and go there now. Phone Bible, paper Bible, all is good. Acts 2, 14. We have been going through uh, for the last few weeks, starting the book of Acts, going through it verse by verse. It's been a lot of fun. And one of the coolest things about Acts, I'll say yet again, it's, it's cool because it's not just a story and a history of what happened in the past. Acts is a story of what's still happening now and what God is doing now and what God wants to do now. So it's very relevant, full of principles, full of truth that's super applicable to our lives, our day, our walk, our faith, our church. We haven't even, like we've just had the tip of the iceberg in the book of Acts so far. But by sound uh, volume here, I want to know, is anybody excited to be in the book of Acts today? Okay. Right answer, right answer. So Acts 2.14 is where we are. And the, the high flyover Coles Notes version, if you've not been with us the last few weeks, the book of Acts kicks off uh, in the wake of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. He, God himself, the son of God, Jesus, came to the earth. He lived a perfect sinless life that we have failed to achieve. He died on a cross in our place to pay for our sin. He took on the full weight of God's wrath for our sin, though he was innocent. He did that on the cross. He died for us. Somebody say he died for us. He was buried in the ground, dead as dead could be, but on the third day, he rose from the grave. He is victorious over our greatest enemies, which are sin and death. Jesus wins. Jesus is alive. Somebody say he's alive. Yes, and then he ascended into heaven. We read that at the start of Acts chapter one. That's where he is right now, ruling and reigning, king of kings, lord of lords. He's doing just fine. And before he ascended, we read in Acts chapter one, he said to his disciples, his close followers, he said, you are going to be my witnesses. Now somebody say witnesses. You're going to be talking a lot today, I think. It's going to be one of those days. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in all the world. And we talked about that. That's for us too. We're to be pointing people like a billboard that points to Jesus with our whole lives. We talked about that. But he said to his disciples, but stay in Jerusalem and wait until the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit comes. And that's what we read last week at the beginning of Acts 2. The Holy Spirit came. All the believers, there were about 120 believers, which it struck me this week. That's like roughly the size of our church. That was it. That was all the believers. And they were together and they were praying and they were encouraging and they were waiting and just being together. And the Holy Spirit, wham, he showed up and it was powerful. The Holy Spirit is God. The presence and the power of God came in, in full measure, in full power, in full uh, force. And it said in Acts chapter two that uh, it sounded like a mighty rushing wind when the Holy Spirit came and that tongues of fire descended on the people that were there. And they all began speaking in languages not their own. It was a supernatural miracle. And then at the sound and at the commotion and at the hullabaloo, it says the multitude of people that were in Jerusalem at the time, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, they all came together and they said, what's going on? What's the story? Some people, it says, were amazed. Other people said, they, this is just a, a party trick and they're all drunk, so there's confusion. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 2.14. Still with me? Okay. So, Acts 2.14, I'm going to just read the first couple of verses of this, and then we'll unpack, 
and continue. It says, but Peter, standing with the 11, he lifted up his voice and he addressed them, the crowd. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. By the way, that's referring to 9 a.m., right? He's saying, you're accusing us of being drunk at 9 a.m. It's not right to be drunk anytime, but we're like not even just day drunk. You're telling us we're morning drunk? Like, uh-uh, no, third hour of the day. And he says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he's going to go on to continue in a minute, but I want to just pause there because you need to see how this is Peter seizing the opportunity. Help me again say the opportunity, the opportunity to be witnesses for Jesus. This text in Acts chapter two, this is a master class about being a witness and about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So buckle up. Hope you got your seatbelts on. First thing I want you to see about this is that God provided this opportunity, right? We talked about this last week. Jerusalem at this particular time, this specific like week-long period was extra full of people, more so than normal because this was happening during the Feast of Pentecost, otherwise known as the Feast of Weeks. This is one of the three biggest Jewish festivals on the whole calendar for the whole year. And Jewish people from all around the world would come to Jerusalem during the Feast of Weeks during Pentecost to celebrate the festival. So it just so happened that God sent his spirit when all of these extra people were around. Hint, he did it on purpose. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, right? Now, so, so the spirit has come, this powerful miracle of this, uh, the people speaking in different languages has happened. And then people literally come up to the disciples and say, what's going on? Peter did not fabricate this opportunity God provided it. And we're going to see that Peter takes it. He seizes it. But God was the one moving things, preparing people, arranging things so that this opportunity can come up. Peter was not responsible to fabricate it. And you just need to see what Peter's going to say. He stands and addresses the crowd. This is not a cold call. How many of you have a sales background? A few of you? How many of you hate cold calls? I love them. You love them. Okay. So guarantee this brother made way more money on sales than all the rest of you guys did. Just saying, that's what's going on here. A cold call being, right, you're unannounced, you're uninvited, and you just show up trying to sell your product, and the person that's receiving it does probably not really want you there and is trying to look for the first excuse to kick you out of there. That's a cold call. But that's not what's happening here. Again, God's lining all of this up. And I want to tell you something. God is still doing this today. God is not just the God of the past. He's the God of the present and the future. And if God did this in the past, we believe he can and does still do this today. So again, he has arranged this meeting. Peter did not fabricate it. He didn't do a cold call. He didn't ram the square peg through the round hole. You know, it's not like I always make fun of when we do this sometimes. Peter's not being the weird guy that just makes everything religious or spiritual for no reason. Like, hey, Braden, how's the weather today? Oh, well, it's hot and it's gonna be hotter in hell. Like, we're not even talking about that. Come on. Peter doesn't even have to do that right here because God's prepared this. We are not responsible for fabricating and forcing opportunities to witness and share the gospel. Here's what you're responsible for. Asking for opportunities and keeping your eyes open for opportunities and seizing the opportunity, which is what Peter does like we're gonna read. Now, like I say, he was responsible for witnessing. He was responsible for standing in the gap and sharing the gospel just like we are today. And you say, well, Braden, that's well and good, but I could never, this gospel sharing stuff, I could never. Don't put me in front of a crowd. Don't give me, you know, three people. Don't give me one person. 
I'm pretty sure if Jesus himself was here, I wouldn't share the gospel with him. Some of you, that's what you say, right? That might've been offensive. Sorry, not sorry. Anyway, but let's be honest, sharing the gospel, which is what the forthcoming text that we're gonna read, it's all about, that's kind of a big hang up for a lot of people in the church, for a lot of believers. I've been hung up on that. And sometimes I still get hung up on it. We make all the excuses. We're fearful. We're passive. We say, oh, shoot, I missed that opportunity, but I'll get them next time. Knowing full well, you're going to do the very same thing you did this time next time. Does that minister to anybody? I've been there. I've been there. And we just let things go by. You say, I could never. I just don't have the courage. I don't have the words. I don't have the knowledge. Here's what I want to encourage you with. Peter didn't either. Peter is not some superstar evangelist in his own power or anything like that. Here's why Peter is able to stand and address the crowd, because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. We read that in last week in Acts 2.4. They were all filled with the Spirit. So this is the presence and the power of God coming to dwell in you and, and, and to occupy space in your life in such a way that exceptional things of God happen. That's what it is to be filled with the Spirit. We talked about that all last week. Now, I'll remind you, Peter, the guy speaking here, just six weeks or so before this, Peter was the guy who was publicly denying that he even knew Jesus. Aren't you with him? No, I don't know him. Stranger danger. Like he doesn't, he's so weak, passive, fearful, whatever excuse you might have about it. That was Peter. But now here he is. And because he's full of the spirit, He's now seizing the opportunity. He's like a completely different person in this moment. And again, don't fail to see yourself in this as well. We have the same spirit living in us as Christians. We have opportunities to share and to witness just like Peter did. We all have limitations and fears and weaknesses and insecurities like Peter did. We're, we're the very same as him. Well, he was an apostle. Yeah, he was, good for him. You're a believer. You have the same spirit. See yourself in this, right here. Oh, and by the way, I just thought of this. Don't forget, literally the word says God's power is made perfect in your weakness. If you approach, oh, see, that got somebody, right? Oh, I heard. If you're feeling weak and fearful and, and timid and I, I don't have the strength to like share with someone, good, that's the exact place that God can use you and do something powerful through you. I'm talking to Christians today, okay. So Peter it says he stands up and he addresses the crowd. God is not always going to get you to speak to a crowd, by the way. This can look like many different things in many different contexts. God might give you an opportunity to share the gospel with like a small group of people or a few people or one person or a crowd. He might put some of you up in front of a crowd. I'm not here to tell you what God is gonna do or not do in that regard, but the point is, he takes the opportunity. Peter steps in. He, he clears up the confusion. He sets the tone. Hey, whoa, we're not drunk. That's not what's happening here. He says, let's get this straight. And then in verse 16, he begins to start sharing the gospel. Okay, you still with me so far? I haven't mortally offended any of you so far? Okay, I'm sure I will as we go through, but that's a good start anyway. So that's the opportunity. Now, let's read the next big chunk of text in here, verse 17 all the way to verse 36. This is the gospel in here now, verse 17. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, 
That's the Holy Spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I, God says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great, the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved, saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That is a text and a half right there, isn't it? That's like the first gospel sermon that was ever preached, and it is powerful. This right here is Peter sharing and preaching the gospel. Somebody say the gospel. That word gospel means good news. It's the good news specifically about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, and why we're pumped up about it. Romans 1.16 calls the gospel the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So make it very clear. Make it very plain right now. Peter is not sharing positive vibes with people. He's not giving them a TED talk. He's not giving them a motivational speech. He's not just being nice to them. This is the gospel. All of those things, none of them save. None of them are the power of God for salvation. Only the gospel is. And that's what he is sharing with them, plain and simple. And I want you to see, I mean, we talk about the gospel a lot in here because it's important, just saying. And you know, we might use slightly different words than, than what we exactly see in Acts 2 here, but the gospel is all through here. So I wanna break it down. I wanna show you four things that are in here that, that make up the gospel. First of all, if you wanna understand and share the gospel rightly, you need to start with God. Start with God. God is referenced all through there, first of all, all through what we read in Acts 2. If you wanna understand the gospel, you need to understand that there is a God, there's one God, and he made all things. He's the ruler of the heavens and the earth. He's the creator of all that we see and all that we know. He sits on a throne, he is perfect, he is worthy of worship, he is worthy to be praised, and literally the universe centers on him. In him all things hold together, the Bible says. There's one God, and this God, what's really cool, 
cool is that he's not just some distant, faraway figure. He's personal. He's, he's relational. God wants a relationship with you. God literally made you. Turn to your neighbor and say, God made you. While you're still looking at them, tell them God loves you. God made you and God loves you. Every single one of us, we were made in the image of God. We were made to relate to God and be close to God and find our identity and our strength and our purpose in God. It's all about him. There is no true life apart from God. It's just a sham and a shadow. True life is all about and revolves around the Lord. He wants this relationship with us. And it even just says this, even here, look, pick this up in what you see on the screen here. Verse 17, God says, I wanna pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's like, I want, I want my presence to be with you. I want to be close to you. See the relational in there. Verse 19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. He could just do wonders in the heavens for us to see, but he wants to do them here in our midst. And even verse 22 here, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders that God did through him in our midst. It's not distant, far away. It's God who, who is the center of the universe and who wants us to walk with him. That's part of the gospel. That's, that's understanding what God created you for and what God is calling you to, a relationship, a life. Jesus says, I've come so that you could have life and life abundantly. That's what God wants for you. That's part of the gospel. Second part of the gospel you need to know, it's about sin. Somebody say sin. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is turning our back on God. It's breaking the laws of God. It's turning aside and doing our own thing instead of doing God's thing. And God is perfect and holy, and sin is imperfection and unholy. And so where God is, sin cannot be. This is a problem because the Bible says we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. We all miss the mark. We all come under the standard. So if sin separates us from God, but we're supposed to have a relationship with God and that's supposed to be literally the bedrock of our life, well, now we're apart from that and that's tragic. Now, now in our own stock and strength, we go through this life, again, a shadow and a sham. We try to find happiness, we try to find meaning, we try to find fulfillment, we try to find purpose, satisfaction, all these things. But the point is this, none of those can be truly found in any sort of meaningful, lasting way apart from the Lord. It just doesn't work. And all of us have sinned. All of us have broken faith and trust with God. All of us are removed from that possibility of having that relationship with him. The Bible compounds matters when it says that the wages of sin is what? Death. So not only do you go through this life apart from that relationship, apart from that, that true life that God created you to live, we're on a one-way track, on a one-way ticket to death, physical, spiritual death, hell, punishment, condemnation, wrath. These are all real things. And that's what we're all headed toward in and of ourselves. And even you hear, see on the screen, like it talks about the last days. That's a reference to the judgment in the end of all time. Jesus is gonna come back and he's gonna judge the living and the dead. Every person will stand before the throne of God to be judged. And we're gonna be judged according to our sin. Well, I'll talk about the rest of that in a minute, but God's gonna look at us and the books are gonna be open and here's all the ways that you dropped the ball, Braden. Sobering. And in verse 20, it talks about it again, before the day of the Lord, the great and magnificent day. This is where Jesus comes back and brings this era to a close. This day is coming. History is marching and running and speeding toward that day. And I'm saying that if we are still in our sin, when that day comes, we are positioned very poorly. 
Because after that, there's no more chance to turn. After that, there's no more chance for it to be fixed. That's the end. Bang, over. And I want to just say something to you. This is part of the gospel. You say, that sounds like almost like it might offend somebody. Guess what? The gospel, it's too bad somebody says in the front row. It is. That's too bad for you. If you're going to share the gospel, there is offense in the gospel. You cannot truly share the gospel without the offense. We say, oh, I don't want to offend somebody. And granted, the point is, the goal is not to offend somebody, right? Like, hey, ugly, like, let me tell you. It's like, no, okay, not like that. But, 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 if you take the offense out of the gospel, right, you're a sinner and you need to be saved and you're not right with God. If you take that out, it's not the gospel anymore. It's some other message. It's some touchy-feely, nice, frilly thing but it's not the power of God for salvation. And that's not the message that the Lord is gonna bless. It's required for you to say, listen, you're, you're offside with God and if nothing changes, like literally, you're going to stand before God and you're gonna be judged and condemned and you're gonna go to hell. You say, what if people don't like that? Too bad. That's the message they need to hear. And again, you leave out the offense. It's like, what are we trying to communicate to people that they're getting saved from? It doesn't make any sense. The offense needs to be there. If there's no awareness of sin for people, the logic is, well, what do I need a savior for then? And they brush and breeze right on past Jesus because what you just shared with them wasn't the gospel. The offense must be in there. And again, the goal is not to offend. The goal is to love them and to share the news that can save them and set them free. That's love. That's not hateful at all. Some people won't receive it. Some people might get offended. Doesn't change anything for us. This is the message we got to share. You guys get it. Third thing in the gospel that needs, needs, needs to be in there is Jesus. Somebody say Jesus. Jesus. This is like slightly important piece of the gospel right here. Talks about him all through here. But in, Acts, uh, in two, verse 22, talks about Jesus of Nazareth. He, he goes on to say that he's the Christ. He's the Lord. Verse 36 says that. Don't, don't even forget John three sixteen. Yes, we're all sinners, but God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So yes, there is a fence. There is a sting in the gospel. But this part is the good news. Yes, you're a sinner and you're not right with God. But God himself stepped off his throne and entered into your mess and died to pay for your sins so that you could be forgiven. Furthermore, he didn't even have any sin of his own. He was innocent. The innocent stepped in to pay for the offense of the guilty. That's scandalous. And that's what Jesus did for you because he loves you. That's good news today, isn't it? So that's all through here in this text. Jesus came. He demonstrated the power of the kingdom of God. He did mighty works and signs. But look here. It says he was crucified and killed, died to pay for your sin. I don't know how great your record of sin is this morning, Jesus' blood, Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' death, Jesus' grace is bigger than all of your sin. All of it. And that doesn't end there. It's not just that Jesus died. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget to give thanks for that. But look at here, verse 24. God raised him up. He didn't stay dead. He loosed the pangs of death. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death because he never sinned. He was innocent. And so he he rises to life. Jesus is alive right now. Sin could not beat him. Death could not beat him. Sin and death, 
are positioned to beat all of us, but they couldn't beat Jesus. And when we're in Jesus, they can't beat us either. This is good news, isn't it, people? So this is what Jesus has done. It goes on to say later on that he ascended into heaven. And we already read that in Acts 1 as well. Verse 33 says that he's exalted. He's ruling and reigning. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the savior of the world. Jesus is our good news today, friends. Let's not forget him. And then the fourth part of the gospel is simply this. It's invitation. Somebody say invitation. Verse 21 says it so succinctly. Everyone, read it with me out loud. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a promise. What an opportunity that is. So Jesus being alive and risen and ruling and reigning right now, what he's doing is he's extending this invitation to us. Right? He's died for us. He died to pay for our sin. He rose in victory to give us hope, to secure all of that. And he's now saying, come to me, call on my name. That's what he's saying. Your sins can be forgiven. If you've never done this, your sins can be forgiven by the one who died to pay for your forgiveness. Your future can be secure in, by the one who holds the future in his hand. If you have not done this, you need to turn to Jesus today. You need Jesus. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other path to true life. There's no other way to escape the judgment. It's only found in Jesus Christ. Yes. So that is the gospel. Those four parts, and you can you know, say certain words differently. It's all good. But those are the elements that need to be in the gospel if it's going to be the gospel. That is the good news for all people. That is the power of God for salvation. And that is the news that the world desperately needs. Yes, even in a world where people seem like they don't give a rip about God and that we've moved on past God. No, our world needs the gospel more than ever before more than ever. This is the message that the church needs to champion. This is the news that we need to take out to the world, not just harbor it for ourselves. This is the message that has changed your life as a believer. And God is waiting to change others' lives with it as well. Somebody give thanks for the gospel of Jesus Christ today, please. Yes. So again, let me just sum up where we've been. This opportunity presented itself. God gave Peter and these disciples an opportunity to witness about Jesus. Peter had the courage because he was filled with the Spirit. He seized the opportunity. He shared the gospel. That was his responsibility. That's the only part of that whole pie he was responsible to eat and to, and to carve out. God gave the opportunity. And as we're going to see in a minute, God is the one who stirred in people's hearts. And God is the one who brings the results. We're gonna see that here in a minute, but don't, don't, don't miss the fact that Peter was a messenger. Peter was a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Very specific, very important, because that's for us as well too. Everybody take a breath. It's hot in here, very hot in here. It's bonding. It's all, we all get, anyway, no, I won't say what I was gonna say. Never mind. we'll roll on. Let's, uh, let's talk about the rest of our text. I, this is such a cool part of text. The rest of the next four verses, five verses we got to read. I want to talk about the result of the gospel. Somebody say the result. As you're going to see in a minute, the Lord did stuff with this presentation of the gospel. Fruit grew from this. Stuff happened from this. Verse 37. Now when they, the crowd, heard this, heard the gospel, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, 
This is a famous verse. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness. There's witness again, just saying. And he continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Kind of sounds like the generation we live in, doesn't it? It's God's word. Just telling you, just delivering the mail to you. And it says, so those who received his word were baptized. And look at this. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine 3,000 souls in one day, the work that God did. So God still does this today, by the way. This, this here, full of principles for us today. And we're gonna unpack those. It starts out in verse seven by saying that when the crowd heard the gospel, they were cut to the heart. This was their light bulb moment, right? All of a sudden, it all made sense. They were hit like a ton of bricks. And if you're a Christian, I'm telling you that you have experienced this moment as well. I remember mine distinctly. October of 2004, I was 13 years old. I was in Halifax at the Metro Center at a Franklin Graham revival. I don't know how we ended up down in Halifax at a Franklin Graham revival, but I think the Lord knew I was supposed to be there that night. And Franklin Graham, we're way up in the nosebleeds like this. Binoculars are out. There he is, that little speck down there. And he, I remember, he preached a message on the prodigal son, and he kept saying at the end, come home, come home. Why don't you just come on home? And I'd heard the story of the prodigal son a thousand times because I grew up in the church. But that night, the Lord pew, nailed me with it. And then he did the altar call, of course, and I literally was too afraid to go down to the front because I said, my parents are so far up there, I don't think I'm going to find them again if I go down for the altar call. Seriously. But I said, I think what I know about the Lord, I'm okay if I just talk to him from my seat. But that was my moment right there. Nailed me with that. This right here in verse 37, this is not the crowd hearing the message and just going, okay, check the box, moving on. Thanks for the sermon, Peter. No, this is conviction from the Holy Spirit. This stops them dead in their tracks. And they say, what shall we do? Right? They are not comfortable moving on from this moment without doing something. You should just know something. God's not afraid to make you uncomfortable. Say, I thought he loved me. Yeah, he super loves you. And that's why he will sometimes make you uncomfortable to get your attention. They couldn't just do nothing. They had to respond. They were just so nailed by the reality of the gospel, by the reality of God. And luckily, Peter had the answer for them. He said, repent. Somebody say, repent. Repent means to turn around. It means to turn away. It means to admit that you were wrong. It means to change your mind. It means to change course. It means I'm living my life in this fashion, going this way, doing these things, living for whatever, usually ourselves, but I'm turning from that and I'm turning to Jesus. That's what repentance is right there. It's a conscious decision to lay down your life and take up your cross and go after Jesus. That's what repentance is. He says, repent and be baptized. Somebody say baptized. You want to know something really cool? We were mapping out this series in Acts months ago before Christine even ever said, hey, what's the deal with baptism? And here they are happening on the same day. That's the Lord because he's funny and he has a sense of humor, just so you know. Anyway, be baptized. That word baptized, that comes from the Greek word baptizo with the little line over the O like that, very Greek, right? That word baptizo means to dip 
or to plunge or to immerse. So that there, in our estimation as a church, that's talking about water baptism by immersion. This is not talking about infant sprinkling. If that's your background and your thing, I'm not knocking you. I'm not making funny or anything like that. I'm just saying this is what we see in the scriptures. It's the, the baptism by immersion like that. And by the way, this is not like at our church, we don't baptize infants. It doesn't have to be an adult, but someone that's old enough to make this decision to repent and to follow Jesus on their own, right? Someone that's aware of their sin. And if you're like eight days old or a month old or whatever as a baby, you're probably super cute, but you're not aware of your sin. Maybe you haven't even sinned yet. I don't know. Not going to go down that road today. That's a whole other rabbit trail for another day. But that's the way that we interpret that scripture right there. Now, Here's the funny thing about baptism, okay? I've been at this long enough to know that whenever any time a verse or a message or anything about baptism comes up, sometimes the hair on people's necks stands up on end because this is an area that historically has been debated about amongst Christians. Faithful, Bible-reading, Jesus-loving, going-to-heaven Christians can disagree on the nature of what baptism is and and what happens during it. So we're not gonna solve that whole thing today, but we're just gonna like open the lid on that and just explore that for a few minutes today. It's gonna be fun, I promise you. There are kind of two main schools of thought when it comes to this nature of baptism. When it says, be baptized, because you can read it right there, Acts 2.38, be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. One way of reading that is you say option A, it says be baptized for the, the words for the are generally where the disagreement and the hang up is. Some people say that the words for the mean it's to cause, you're baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, to cause the forgiveness of your sins, aka your sins aren't forgiven until you're baptized. Now other people read it as option B, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That's talking about on the occasion of the forgiveness of your sins. There's Greek things. We could really just get under the hood on that one today. Greek words, Greek grammar, the whole thing. It's very Greek. Anyway, but that can read, be baptized on the occasion of your sins being forgiven, aka get baptized because your sins have been forgiven. And I want to tell you something right now, just to like make it very plain. There are some people in our church who are hard line on option A, and there are some people in our church sitting here right now who are hard line on option B. And there are some who are somewhere in the middle or a hybrid of the two. So here's what we're all going to do. We're going to take a breath, and we're going to humble ourselves today. And we're not going to get up on our high horse and our soapbox. Not that I think you guys would do that anyway, because you're very nice people. But we're just going to we're just gonna soak in this and we're gonna see what the Lord puts on our heart. Okay, so like if you have like an implement in your hand that you were gonna throw at me, just go ahead and put it down, okay? You don't need it today. Save that for another time, okay. Now, here's what's clear about baptism. Here's what's absolutely unmistakably clear. We are saved by grace through faith. Say that with me, by grace through faith. Very clear, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 talks about that. By grace through faith. It's not something that you do. It's God's grace on you and your faith in what God has done for you. That's what does the saving. Uh, Galatians 2, 16 talks about the same thing. You need to believe in order to be justified, to be forgiven, to be right with God. So that means that the water, you can go ahead and be offended by this. I don't care. I'm saying it anyway. The water doesn't save anybody, okay? That water that you saw up in that tub this morning, it's not holy water, 
right? We didn't have to go onto some sketchy website to buy it because, you know, you know, someone prayed over it or whatever. It's like that's water out of the tap from the St. John Municipal Water System, right? Oh, this would be a perfect place for a joke about that, but I would, n- I would never dare say about that. Okay. Anyway, boil order this week, anybody? Okay. No, we're good. Okay. Anyway, this is just water, okay? Like what we saw this morning, someone was getting dunked in water. It's just water. Just water. Water doesn't save you, nor does anything else save you apart from faith in Jesus. Jesus saves you. Say that. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. saves. There's a couple of verses about this. Colossians 2.12 talks about how we get buried with Jesus in baptism in which you were also raised through what? Through faith. There's faith. 1 Peter 3.21 says the same thing. And oh, this is a verse that has caused so much confusion for people. Can't do the deep dive on it today. But it says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. You see, there it is. The baptism saves you. But look, it goes on to say, well, but not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's not about the water, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Appeal to God, that's language of faith. That's language saying, I have believed in the Lord and now I'm calling out to him because I believe and I have faith in him. So faith in Jesus is what does the saving, okay? Now, you might ask, well, then why is baptism important? Well, I'm glad you asked. For one reason, this is like reason number 356 on the list, it's fun to give us an occasion to hang out in the gym upstairs on a Sunday morning. But that's not one of the main reasons why baptism is important, though that was fun up there, just saying. Three reasons I'll give you why baptism is important. Number one, we just talked about it. It's a way of appealing to God, appealing to God. That 1 Peter 3.21 that we see there, appeal to God. This is a way of you crying out to the Lord. This is a way of declaring your allegiance to the Lord through baptism. Very simple. The second way is this. Baptism, it's important because it's a way of identifying with Jesus. You can see these verses again. We read Colossians 2.12 a minute ago. We're buried with Jesus in baptism. Same this here, Romans 6, verse 3 and 4. If you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, you've been baptized into his death. You were buried, therefore, by baptism into his death. Those words, with him. That's like a connection. That's like powerful. That's intimate. This is important. This isn't just like, as equally as I will tell you, the water doesn't save anybody. I'm equally going to tell you that baptism is not just some empty, meaningless act. Something very special, very personal, very spiritual happens in baptism. Just like Jesus was buried in the ground after he died, that's what the baptism is signifying. We, we die to ourselves, and just like Jesus rose from the grave, we, you know, we don't leave the people in the tank under the water, just so you know, right? We raise them up like this so they can breathe again. That signifies how Jesus was raised from the dead. We're getting raised to new life. It's very powerful, And again, whether you hold that the the moment of salvation is at baptism or it's before that, it doesn't really matter in this context because this this is an intimacy. This is special. It's important. The intimacy happens at baptism for sure. It's kind of like this metaphor won't get us all the way there, but it'll get us part of the way there. It's kind of like marriage in a way. If you you know, see a couple that is in love and they've professed their love for each other and they've uh, expressed their desire to get married and they've set a date and wonderful, it's gonna be June the 15th. Well, before that, they're not married. 
But when that wedding day comes, again, that's not just some empty, meaningless ritual. That's something that is concrete and it cements the thing. Now the union is official. Now it's public. Baptism is like that too, and it's public. There's witnesses. So it's very important. It's a seal and it's a sign of regeneration. The old is gone. The new is here. New birth, new life has begun. Super valuable, super special. Baptism is. And the third reason why baptism is important, it's simply this, it's for obedience. You might remember in verse 38 today, we read, Peter said, when filled with the Spirit, he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. I wonder, where's the question mark on that? That's a command. That's an instruction. You'll also remember Jesus in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. He said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Commanded by Peter, who's an apostle. Commanded by Jesus, okay? It's very simple. It's not a religious thing. It's not, okay, well, I have to just follow all the rules and do the right thing and check off the box. No, the Bible literally says if you love the Lord, you'll obey his commands. Not, not drudgery, but because you love him. Like it pleases you to follow his commands. See baptism through that lens. I will just be honest with you. I have a problem with people who are believers who just refuse to be baptized. They say, I won't. Hey, it's fine if there's misunderstanding or it's never been explained to me or whatever. But people that just say, I won't do it. Oh, so you think you're better than the command. Oh, I understand. Okay. God says this, but you're just above the law. It makes sense to me. Not really. Problem with that. It's very clearly an act of obedience uh, to be baptized. And again, we can sit here and we can have the conversation about whether the moment of salvation happens when you're in or under or coming up from the water or whether it happens before when you first realize and express your faith in Jesus. That's fine. Let's love each other and let's have that debate and that discussion and that conversation. But here's my point today. Don't miss the forest for the trees, okay? Verse 38 in Acts 2, it's a very clear sign it's a very clear call to surrender to Jesus and to follow Jesus, okay? Don't miss it. There is wrath without him. There is forgiveness with him. There is punishment without him. There is love with him. Life is empty without him. There is purpose with him. You need Jesus is what Acts 2.38 is telling you. Don't miss that. He goes on to say in verse 38, you do this and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we've talked about that already. We talked about it last week. We're gonna talk about lots in the coming weeks. The Holy Spirit, when you believe in Jesus, he comes to dwell in you. The presence and the power of God sets up shop in your life, in your heart, in your soul, in your body. It's amazing. So God is always with you. God is never far away. The, the power of God is always accessible to you as a Christian because of the Holy Spirit living in you. He goes on to say, this is for you, verse 39. It's for your children. It's for all who are far off. It's for everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. God is calling you to himself today. If you've never done this, this is for you. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Save yourself from the crooked generation. I laughed at that earlier, but it's very true. That describes our generation to a T. People need the gospel. People need to be saved. And then we get to verse 41. Oh, so amazing. I'll start winding this down here on verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. In other words, Peter shared the gospel and it worked. 
The enemy will tell you all sorts of lies. Don't bother bringing the gospel up. This is a post-Christian culture. They don't want to hear about that. That's old news. Nobody believes that anymore. I don't know what he might tell you. He's told me all of those things. But I just chuck this verse right back in the face of the enemy and say, no, man, the gospel works. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. People did get saved when they heard the gospel. Right? It wasn't through clever church programming and, you know, the pastor got up and he wore really skinny jeans and was really hipster and trendy and really impressed the crowd. So they decided, you know, they'd join in. No. It's the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit working through the opportunity of the gospel being shared. And 3,000 were added. Again, this is for today as well. I have never personally, admittedly, witnessed that many people get saved at once. Do I believe it's possible? Yup. Do I believe that God has done it before? Yup. Do I believe that God can still do it now? Yup, yup, yup. 100%. 100%. Jesus even said, the fields are white unto harvest. People, like again, the enemy will trick you into all sorts of things, but there are people right now outside of these walls who are eager to hear this message. There are people desperate and hungry for it, and they don't know where to turn or what to do. They're at their wit's end, the end of the rope. They know there's gotta be something more. They know that what they see and, and what this world can offer isn't enough. And you have the message, Christian, You have the answer. You have the truth that they need. It's very clear what we're supposed to do with it. It's not keep it to yourself. It's not hide it under a bushel. It's not be fearful and passive and cowardly. It's to ask to be filled with the Spirit so we can go out and spread this message because people need it. So I wanna wrap up just by giving you three super quick, I'm gonna throw three darts at you here, metaphorically. I would never throw a dart at you, it would be dangerous. Then we're gonna be done, and then I'll explain what we're gonna do next. We need to be praying to the God of the harvest, is number one. We need to be praying for those opportunities. I'm wondering, don't answer out loud, but when's the last time you asked God for an opportunity to share the gospel with someone in your life? Ask. Ask to be filled with the Spirit. Ask to be given the strength. Ask for eyes to see the opportunity. And ask for that person's heart to be tender and open and receptive. We gotta ask. I don't want God to say to me, well, I'd have given you an opportunity, Braden, but you were too busy doing your own stuff. You were too scared. You didn't wanna even look for them. You didn't ask me. Let that not be said of us. Second thing is this, I already said this, but the gospel is required. If you get an opportunity from the Lord, don't settle for a lesser message. Don't settle for just being nice to them or you know, just even casually sprinkling God into the conversation. If you get an opportunity, go for it. Share the gospel. God loves you and made you, but you're a sinner and you're offside with God and not right with God and you're separate from God. But he loves you so much that he, he sent Jesus, his son, to pay for your sin so that you could be forgiven. And he's calling you today to repent of your sin and give yourself to him. Go for it. Take the opportunity. And the third thing is this. I wanna just encourage you by saying, you don't have the power. You, in and of yourself, you literally 100% lack the power 
to have any kind of lasting effect, meaningful, deep change at a soul level in a person. You can't do that. Right? Your words, no matter how eloquently you spout off the gospel, man, your words, like they don't have the power. So if you're feeling like, man, I really lack the strength, absolutely right. You can't save a person. You can't change a person's heart. Only God can do that, sister, right here. Look, she's brand new at this, and she got it. Love it. The Holy Spirit is the one that does that work. So I say that to you to say, don't put all kinds of undue pressure on yourself. Oh, I have to get it exactly right, and I have to save them. You're a messenger. You're a mouthpiece. You're a witness. Stay in that lane. Be faithful in that lane. You know what that all means at the end of the day? You know, the gospel goes out, people get saved through it. We don't get the glory anyway. It's God that does the saving. It's God that people are being reconciled to. It's Jesus who people are meeting. It's Jesus who people are delighted in. It's not about you. See, if you're scared to share the gospel, it's because you're making it about you. It's not about you. 